Hello, and welcome to Harry Potter and the Methods of Rationality, the podcast. Written by Eliezer Yudkowsky, read by Ineash Brodsky, based on the works of J.K. Rowling. Second half of Chapter 6, The Planning Fallacy. The shop was the same as they had left it. Recognizable and unrecognizable items still laid out on the slanted wooden display, the gray glow still protecting, and the salesgirl back in her old position. The salesgirl looked up as they approached, her face showing surprise. I'm so sorry, she said as they got closer, and Harry spoke at almost the same moment. I apologize for... They broke off and looked at each other, and then the salesgirl laughed a little. I didn't mean to get you in trouble with Professor McGonagall, she said. Her voice lowered conspiratorially. I hope she wasn't too awful to you. Della, said Professor McGonagall, sounding scandalized. Bag of gold, Harry said to his pouch, and then looked back up at the salesgirl while he counted out five galleons. Don't worry, I understand that she's only awful to me because she loves me. He counted out five galleons to the salesgirl while Professor McGonagall was spluttering something unimportant. One emergency healing pack plus, please. It was actually sort of unnerving to see how the widening lip swallowed the briefcase-sized medical kit. Harry couldn't help wondering what would happen if he tried climbing into the mokeskin pouch himself, given that only the person who put something in was supposed to be able to take it out again. When the pouch was done... eating... his hard-won purchase, Harry swore he heard a small burping sound afterward. That had to have been spelled in on purpose. The alternative hypothesis was too horrifying to contemplate. In fact, Harry couldn't even think of any alternative hypotheses. Harry looked back up at the professor as they began walking through Diagon Alley once more. Where to next? Professor McGonagall pointed toward a shop that looked as if it had been made from flesh instead of bricks and covered in fur instead of paint. Small pets are permitted at Hogwarts. You could get an owl to send letters, for example. Can I pay a knut or something and rent an owl when I need to send mail? Yes. Then I think, emphatically, no. Professor McGonagall nodded, as though ticking off a point. Might I ask why not? I had a pet rock once. It died. You don't think you could take care of a pet? I could, but I would end up obsessing all day long about whether I'd remembered to feed it that day or if it was slowly starving in its cage wondering where its master was and why there wasn't any food. That poor owl, abandoned like that. I wonder what it would do. Well, I expect it'd get really hungry and start trying to claw its way out of the cage or the box or whatever, though it probably wouldn't have much luck with that. Harry stopped short. The witch went on, still in that soft voice. And what would happen to it afterward? Excuse me. Harry said, and he reached up to take Professor McGonagall by the hand, gently but firmly, and steered her into yet another alleyway. After ducking so many well-wishers, the process had become almost unnoticeably routine. Please cast that quieting spell. Quietus. Harry's voice was shaking. That owl does not represent me. My parents never locked me in a closet and left me to starve. I do not have abandonment fears, and I don't like the trend of your thoughts, Professor McGonagall. The witch looked down at him gravely. And what thoughts would those be, Mr. Potter? You think I was... Harry was having trouble saying it. 
I was abused? Were you? No! No, I never was! Do you think I'm stupid? I know about the concept of child abuse. I know about inappropriate touching and all of that. And if anything like that happened, I would call the police and report it to the head teacher and look up social services in the phone book and tell grandpa and grandma and Mrs. Fig. But my parents never did anything like that. Never, ever, ever. How dare you suggest such a thing? The older witch gazed at him steadily. It is my duty as deputy headmistress to investigate possible signs of abuse in the children under my care. Harry's anger was spiraling out of control into pure black fury. Don't you ever dare breathe a word of these, these insinuations to anyone else. No one, do you hear me, McGonagall? An accusation like that can ruin people and destroy families even when the parents are completely innocent. I've read about it in the newspapers. Harry's voice was climbing to a high-pitched scream. The system doesn't know how to stop. It doesn't believe the parents or the children when they say nothing happened. Don't you dare threaten my family with that. I won't let you destroy my home. Harry. The older witch said softly, and she reached out a hand toward him. Harry took a fast step back, and his hand snapped up and knocked hers away. McGonagall froze, then she pulled her hand back and took a step backwards. Harry, it's all right. I believe you. Do you? Harry hissed, the fury still roaring through his blood. Or are you just waiting to get away from me so you can file the papers? Harry, I saw your house. I saw you with your parents. They love you. You love them. I do believe you when you say that your parents are not abusing you. But I had to ask, because there is something strange at work here. Harry stared at her coldly. Like what? Harry, I've seen many abused children in my time at Hogwarts. It would break your heart to know how many. And when you're happy, you don't behave like one of those children, not at all. You smile at strangers, you hug people, I put my hand on your shoulder and you didn't flinch. But sometimes, only sometimes, you say or do something that seems very much like someone who spent his first eleven years locked in a cellar, not the loving family that I saw. Professor McGonagall tilted her head, her expression growing puzzled again. Harry took this in, processing it. The black rage began to drain away as it dawned on him that he was being listened to respectfully and that his family wasn't in danger. And how do you explain your observations, Professor McGonagall? I don't know, but it's possible that something could have happened to you that you don't remember. Fury rose up again in Harry. That sounded all too much like what he'd read in the newspaper stories of shattered families. Suppressed memory is a load of pseudoscience! People do not repress traumatic memories! They remember them all too well for the rest of their lives! No, Mr. Potter. There's a charm called Obliviation. Harry froze in place. A spell that erases memories? The older witch nodded. But not all the effects of the experience if you see what I'm saying, Mr. Potter. A chill went down Harry's spine. That hypothesis could not be easily refuted. But my parents couldn't do that. Indeed not. It would have taken someone from the wizarding world. There's 
No way to be certain, I'm afraid. Harry's rationalist skills began to boot up again. Professor McGonagall, how sure are you of your observations? And what alternative explanations could there also be? The witch opened her hands as though to show their emptiness. Sure. I'm sure of nothing, Mr. Potter, and all my life I've never met anyone else like you. Sometimes you just don't seem eleven years old or even all that human. Harry's eyebrows rose toward the sky. I'm sorry, Professor McGonagall said quickly. I, I'm very sorry, Mr. Potter. I was trying to make a point, and I'm afraid that came out sounding different from what I had in mind. On the contrary, Professor McGonagall, Harry said and slowly smiled. I shall take it as a very great compliment. But would you mind if I offered an alternative explanation? Please do. Children aren't meant to be much smarter than their parents. Or too much saner, maybe. My father could probably outsmart me if he was, you know, actually trying, instead of using his adult intelligence mainly to come up with new reasons not to change his mind. Harry stopped. I'm too smart, Professor. I've got nothing to say to normal children. Adults don't respect me enough to really talk to me. And frankly, even if they did, they wouldn't sound as smart as Richard Feynman, so I might as well read something Richard Feynman wrote instead. I'm isolated, Professor McGonagall. I've been isolated my whole life. Maybe that has some of the same effects as being locked in a cellar. And I'm too intelligent to look up to my parents the way that children are designed to do. My parents love me, but they don't feel obligated to respond to reason. And sometimes I feel like they're the children. Children who won't listen and have absolute authority over my whole existence. I try not to be too bitter about it, but I also try to be honest with myself. So, yes, I'm bitter. And I also have an anger management problem, but I'm working on it. That's all. That's all? Harry nodded firmly. That's all. Surely, Professor McGonagall, even in Magical Britain, the normal explanation is always worth considering? It was later in the day, the sun lowering in the summer sky and shoppers beginning to peter out from the streets. Some shops had already closed. Harry and Professor McGonagall had bought his textbooks from Flourish and Blots just under the deadline. With only a slight explosion when Harry had made a beeline for the keyword arithmancy and discovered that the seventh-year textbooks invoked nothing more mathematically advanced than trigonometry. At this moment, though, dreams of low-hanging research fruit were far from Harry's mind. At this moment, the two of them were walking out of Ollivander's and Harry was staring at his wand. He'd waved it and produced multicolored sparks, which really shouldn't have come as such an extra shock after everything else he'd seen. But somehow... I can do magic. Me, as in, me personally. I am magical. I am a wizard. He had felt the magic pouring up his arm, and in that instant realized that he had always had that sense, that he had possessed it his whole life, the sense that was not sight or sound or smell or taste or touch, but only magic. Like having eyes but keeping them always closed, so you didn't even realize that you were seeing darkness. And then one day, the eye opened and saw the world. The shock of it had poured through him, touching pieces of himself, awakening them. 
and then died away in seconds, leaving only the certain knowledge that he was now a wizard and always had been, and had even, in some strange way, always known it. And... It is very curious indeed that you should be destined for this wand, when its brother, why, its brother gave you that scar. That could not possibly be coincidence. There had been thousands of wands in that shop. Well, okay, actually, it could be coincidence. There were six billion people in the world, and thousand-to-one coincidences happened every day. But Bayes' theorem said that any reasonable hypothesis, which made it more likely than a thousand-to-one that he'd end up with the brother to the Dark Lord's wand, was going to have an advantage. Professor McGonagall had simply said how peculiar and left it at that, which had put Harry into a state of shock at the sheer, overwhelming uncuriosity of wizards and witches. In no imaginable world would Harry just have went, hmm, and walked out of the shop without even trying to come up with a hypothesis for what was going on. His left hand rose and touched his scar. What exactly? You're a full wizard now, said Professor McGonagall. Congratulations. Harry nodded. And what do you think of the wizarding world? It's strange. I ought to be thinking about everything I've seen of magic, everything that I now know is possible, and everything I now know to be a lie, and all the work left before me to understand it. And yet, I find myself distracted by relative trivialities like... Harry lowered his voice. The whole boy-who-lived thing. There didn't seem to be anyone nearby, but no point tempting fate. Professor McGonagall ahemmed. Really? You don't say? Harry nodded. Yes, it's just odd to find out that you were part of this grand story, the quest to defeat the great and terrible Dark Lord, and it's already done, finished, completely over with. Like you're Frodo Baggins, and you find out that your parents took you to Mount Doom and had you toss in the ring when you were one year old, and you don't even remember it. Professor McGonagall's smile had grown somewhat fixed. You know, if I were anyone else, anyone else at all, I'd probably be pretty worried about living up to that start. Gosh, Harry, what have you done since you defeated the Dark Lord? Your own bookshop? That's great! Say, did you know I named my child after you? But I have hopes that this will not prove to be a problem. Harry sighed. Still, it's almost enough to make me wish there were some loose ends from the quest, just so I could say that I really, you know, participated somehow. Oh? said Professor McGonagall in an odd tone. What did you have in mind? Well, for example, you mentioned that my parents were betrayed. Who betrayed them? Sirius Black. The witch said, almost hissing the name. He's in Azkaban, wizarding prison. How probable is it that Sirius Black will break out of prison and I'll have to track him down and defeat him in some spectacular duel? Or better yet, put a large bounty on his head and hide out in Australia while I wait for the results? Professor McGonagall blinked. Twice. Not likely. No one has ever escaped from Azkaban, and I doubt that he will be the first. Harry was a bit skeptical of that no-one-has-ever-escaped-from-Azkaban line. Still, maybe with magic you could actually get close to a 100% perfect prison, especially if you had a wand and they did not. 
the best way to get out would be to not go there in the first place. All right, then. Sounds like it's been nicely wrapped up. He sighed, scrubbing his palm over his head. Or maybe the Dark Lord didn't really die that night. Not completely. His spirit lingers, whispering to people in nightmares that bleed over into the waking world, searching for a way back into the living lands he swore to destroy. And now, in accordance with the ancient prophecy, he and I are locked in a deadly duel where the winner shall lose and the loser shall win. Professor McGonagall's head swiveled and her eyes darted around, as though to search the streets for listeners. I'm joking, Professor, Harry said with some annoyance. Sheesh, why did she always take everything so seriously? A slow, sinking sensation began to dawn in the pit of Harry's stomach. Professor McGonagall looked at Harry with a calm expression. A very, very calm expression. Then a smile was put on. Of course you are, Mr. Potter. Ah, oh, crap. If Harry had needed to formalize the wordless inference that had just flashed into his mind, it would have come out something like, if I estimate the probability of Professor McGonagall doing what I just saw as the result of carefully controlling herself versus the probability distribution for all the things she would do naturally if I made a bad joke, then this behavior is significant evidence for her hiding something. But what Harry actually thought was, Oh, crap. Harry turned his own head to scan the street. Nope, no one nearby. He's not dead, is he? Mr. Potter. The Dark Lord is alive. Of course he's alive. It was an act of utter optimism for me to have even dreamed otherwise. I must have taken leave of my senses. I can't imagine what I was thinking. Just because someone said that his body was found burned to a crisp, I can't imagine why I would have thought he was dead. Clearly, I have much left to learn about the art of proper pessimism. Mr. Potter. At least tell me there's not really a prophecy. Professor McGonagall was still giving him that bright, fixed smile. Oh, you have got to be kidding me. Mr. Potter, you shouldn't go inventing things to worry about. Are you actually going to tell me that? Imagine my reaction later when I find out that there was something to worry about after all. Her fixed smile faltered. Harry's shoulders slumped. I have a whole world of magic to analyze. I do not have time for this. Then both of them shut up as a man in flowing orange robes appeared on the street and slowly passed them by. Professor McGonagall's eyes tracked him unobtrusively. Harry's mouth was moving as he chewed hard on his lip, and someone watching closely would have noticed a tiny spot of blood appear. When the orange-robed man had passed into the distance, Harry spoke again in a low murmur. Are you going to tell me the truth now, Professor McGonagall? And don't bother trying to wave it off. I'm not stupid. You're eleven years old, Mr. Potter, she said in a harsh whisper. And therefore subhuman. Sorry. For a moment there, I forgot. These are dreadful and important matters. They are secret, Mr. Potter. It is a catastrophe that you, still a child, know even this much. You must not tell anyone, do you understand? Absolutely no one. As sometimes happened, when Harry got sufficiently angry, his blood went cold instead of hot, 
and a terrible, dark clarity descended over his mind, mapping out possible tactics and assessing their consequences with iron realism. Point out that you have a right to know. Failure. Eleven-year-old children do not have rights to know anything in McGonagall's eyes. Say that you will not be friends anymore. Failure. She does not value your friendship sufficiently. Point out that you will be in danger if you do not know. Failure. Plans have already been made based on your ignorance. The certain inconvenience of rethinking them will seem far more unpalatable than the mere uncertain prospect of your coming to harm. Justice and reason will both fail. You must either find something you have that she wants, or find something you can do which she fears. Ah. Well then, Professor, Harry said in a low, icy tone. It sounds like I have something you want. You can, if you like, tell me the truth, the whole truth, and in return I will keep your secrets. Or you can try to keep me ignorant so you can use me as a pawn, in which case I will owe you nothing. McGonagall stopped short in the street. Her eyes blazed and her voice descended into an outright hiss. How dare you! How dare you! He whispered back at her. You would blackmail me? Harry's lips twisted. I am offering you a favor. I am giving you a chance to protect your precious secret. If you refuse, I will have every natural motive to make inquiries elsewhere. Not to spite you, but because I have to know. Get past your pointless anger at a child who you think ought to obey you, and you'll realize that any sane adult would do the same. Look at it from my perspective. How would you feel if it was you? Harry watched McGonagall, observed her harsh breathing. It occurred to him that it was time to ease off the pressure, let her simmer for a while. You don't have to decide right away, Harry said in a more normal tone. I'll understand if you want time to think about my offer. But I'll warn you of one thing, Harry said, his voice growing colder. Don't try that obliviation spell on me. Some time ago, I worked out a signal, and I have already sent that signal to myself. If I find that signal, and I don't remember sending it... Harry let his voice trail off significantly. McGonagall's face was working as her expressions shifted. I wasn't thinking of obliviating you, Mr. Potter. But why would you have invented such a signal if you didn't know about... I thought of it while reading a Muggle science fiction book and said to myself, Well, just in case. And no, I won't tell you the signal. I'm not dumb. I hadn't planned to ask, McGonagall said. She seemed to fold in on herself, and suddenly looked very old and very tired. This has been an exhausting day, Mr. Potter. Can we get your trunk and send you home? I will trust you not to speak upon this matter until I have had time to think. Keep in mind that there are only two other people in the whole world who know about this matter and they are Headmaster Albus Dumbledore and Professor Severus Snape. So, new information. That was a peace offering. Harry nodded in acceptance and turned his head to look forward and started walking again as his blood slowly began to warm over once more. So now I've got to find some way to kill an immortal dark wizard, Harry said and sighed in frustration. 
I really wish you had told me that before I started shopping. The trunk shop was more richly appointed than any other shop Harry had visited. The curtains were lush and delicately patterned, the floor and walls of stained and polished wood, and the trunks occupied places of honor on polished ivory platforms. The salesman was dressed in robes of finery only a cut below those of Lucius Malfoy, and spoke with exquisite oily politeness to both Harry and Professor McGonagall. Harry had asked his questions and had gravitated to a trunk of heavy-looking wood, not polished but warm and solid, carved with the pattern of a guardian dragon whose eyes shifted to look at anyone nearing it. A trunk charmed to be light, to shrink on command, to sprout small clawed tentacles from its bottom and squirm after its owner. A trunk with two drawers on each of four sides that each slid out to reveal compartments as deep as the whole trunk. A lid with four locks, each of which would reveal a different space inside. And, this was the important part, a handle on the bottom which slid out a frame containing a suitcase leading down into a small lighted room that would hold, Harry estimated, around twelve bookcases. If they made luggages like this, Harry didn't know why anyone bothered owning a house. One hundred and eight golden galleons. That was the price of a good trunk, lightly used. At around fifty British pounds to the galleon, that was enough to buy a second-hand car. It would be more expensive than everything else Harry had ever bought in his whole life, all put together. Ninety-seven galleons. That was how much was left in the bag of gold Harry had been allowed to take out of Gringotts. Professor McGonagall wore a look of chagrin upon her face. After a long day's shopping, she hadn't needed to ask Harry how much gold was left in the bag after the salesman quoted his price, which meant the professor could do good mental arithmetic without pen and paper. Once again, Harry reminded himself that scientifically illiterate was not at all the same thing as stupid. I'm sorry, young man said Professor McGonagall. This is entirely my fault. I would offer to take you back to Gringotts, but the bank will be closed for all but emergency services now. Harry looked at her, wondering. Well, sighed Professor McGonagall as she swung on one heel. We may as well go, I suppose. She hadn't lost it completely when a child had dared defy her. She hadn't been happy, but she had thought instead of exploding in fury. It might have just been that there was an immortal Dark Lord to fight, that she needed Harry's goodwill. But most adults wouldn't have been capable of thinking even that much, wouldn't consider future consequences at all if someone lower in status had refused to obey them. Professor? The witch turned back and looked at him. Harry took a deep breath. He needed to be a little angry for what he wanted to try now. There was no way he'd have the courage to do it otherwise. She didn't listen to me, he thought to himself. I would have taken more gold, but she didn't want to listen. Focusing his entire world on McGonagall and the need to bend this conversation to his will, he spoke. Professor, you thought 100 galleons would be more than enough for a trunk. That's why you didn't bother warning me when it went down to 97, which is just the sort of thing the research studies show. That's what happens when people think they're leaving themselves a little error margin. They're not pessimistic enough. If it had been up to me, I'd have taken 200 galleons just to be sure. There was plenty of money in that vault and I could have put back any extra later. But I thought you wouldn't let me do it. 
I thought you'd be angry at me just for asking. Was I wrong? I suppose I must confess that you are right, said Professor McGonagall. But, young man. That sort of thing is the reason why I have trouble trusting adults. Somehow, Harry kept his voice steady. Because they get angry if you even try to reason with them. To them, it's defiance and insolence and a challenge to their higher tribal status. If you try to talk to them, they get angry. So if I had anything really important to do, I wouldn't be able to trust you. Even if you listened with deep concern to whatever I said, because that's also part of the role of someone playing a concerned adult, you'd never change your actions. You wouldn't actually behave differently because of anything I said. The salesman was watching them both with unabashed fascination. I can understand your point of view, Professor McGonagall said eventually. If I sometimes seem too strict, please remember that I have served as head of Gryffindor House for what feels like several thousand years. Harry nodded and continued. So, suppose I had a way to get more galleons from my vault without us going back to Gringotts, but it involved me violating the role of an obedient child. Would I be able to trust you with that, even though you'd have to step outside your own role as Professor McGonagall to take advantage of it? What? To put it another way, if I could make today have happened differently, so that we didn't take too little money with us, would that be all right even though it would involve a child being insolent to an adult in retrospect? I suppose... The witch said, looking quite puzzled. Harry took out the mokeskin pouch and said... Eleven galleons originally from my family vault. And there was gold in Harry's hand. For a moment, Professor McGonagall's mouth gaped wide. Then her jaw snapped shut and her eyes narrowed and the witch bit out. Where did you get that? From my family vault, like I said. How? Magic. That's hardly an answer. Snapped Professor McGonagall and then stopped, blinking. No, it isn't, is it? I ought to claim that it's because I experimentally discovered the true secrets of how the pouch works, and that it can actually retrieve objects from anywhere, not just its own inside, if you phrase the request correctly. But actually, it's from when I fell into that pile of gold before, and I shoved some galleons into my pocket. Anyone who understands pessimism knows that money is something you might need quickly and without much warning. So now, are you angry at me for defying your authority? or glad that we succeeded in our important mission. The salesman's eyes were wide like saucers, and the tall witch stood there, silent. Discipline at Hogwarts must be enforced, she said after almost a full minute. For the sake of all the students, and that must include courtesy and obedience from you to all professors. I understand, Professor McGonagall. Good. Now let us buy that trunk and go home. Harry felt like throwing up, or cheering, or fainting, or something. That was the first time his careful reasoning had ever worked on anyone. Maybe because it was also the first time he had something really serious that an adult needed from him. But still, Minerva McGonagall, plus one point. Harry bowed and gave the bag of gold and the extra eleven galleons into McGonagall's hands. Thank you very much, Professor. Can you finish up the purchase for me? I've got to visit the lavatory. The salesman, unctuous once more, pointed toward a door set into the wall with a gold-handled knob. As Harry started to walk away, he heard the salesman ask in his oily voice, May I inquire as to who that was, Madam McGonagall? 
I take it he is Slytherin, third year, perhaps? And from a prominent family, but I did not recognize... The slam of the lavatory door cut off his words, and after Harry had identified the lock and pressed it into place, he grabbed the magical self-cleaning towel and, with shaky hands, wiped moisture off his forehead. Harry's entire body was sheathed in sweat, which had soaked clear through his muggle clothing, though at least it didn't show through the robes. The sun was setting, and it was very late indeed, by the time they stood again in the courtyard of the Leaky Cauldron, the silent, leaf-dusted interface between Magical Britain's Diagon Alley and the entire Muggle world. That was one awfully decoupled economy. Harry was to go to a phone box and call his father once he was on the other side. He didn't need to worry about his luggage being stolen, apparently. His trunk had the status of a major magical item, something that most muggles wouldn't even notice. That was part of what you could get in the wizarding world if you were willing to pay the price of a second-hand car. So here we part ways for a time, Professor McGonagall said. She shook her head in wonderment. This has been the strangest day of my life for many a year, since the day I learned that a child had defeated you-know-who. I wonder now, looking back, if that was the last reasonable day of the world. Oh, like she had anything to complain about. You think your day was surreal. Try mine. I was very impressed with you today, Harry said to her. I should have remembered to compliment you out loud. I was awarding you points in my head and everything. Thank you, Mr. Potter. If you had already been sorted into a house, I would have deducted so many points that your grandchildren would still be losing the house cup. Thank you, Professor. It was probably too early to call her Minnie. This woman might well be the sanest adult Harry had ever met, despite her lack of scientific background. Harry was even considering offering her the number two position in whatever group he formed to fight the Dark Lord, though he wasn't silly enough to say that out loud. Now what would be a good name for that? The Death Eater Eaters? I'll see you again soon, when school starts. And, Mr. Potter, about your wand. I know what you're going to ask, Harry said. He took out his precious wand and, with a deep twinge of inner pain, flipped it over in his hand, presenting her with the handle. Take it. I hadn't planned to do anything, not a single thing, but I don't want you to have nightmares about me blowing up my house. Professor McGonagall shook her head rapidly. Oh no, Mr. Potter, that isn't done. I only meant to warn you not to use your wand at home, since the Ministry can detect underage magic, and it is prohibited without supervision. Ah, that sounds like a very sensible rule. I'm glad to see the Wizarding World takes this sort of thing seriously. Professor McGonagall peered hard at him. You really mean that? Yes, I get it. Magic is dangerous, and the rules are there for good reasons. Certain other matters are also dangerous. I get that too. Remember that I am not stupid. I am unlikely ever to forget it. Thank you, Harry. That does make me feel a bit better about entrusting you with certain things. Goodbye for now. Harry turned to go, into the leaky cauldron, and out towards the muggle world. As his hand touched the back door's handle, he heard a last whisper from behind him. Hermione Granger. What? Harry said, his hand still on the door. Look for a first-year girl named Hermione Granger on the train to Hogwarts. Who is she? There was no answer, and when Harry turned around, Professor McGonagall was gone.
Aftermath Headmaster Albus Dumbledore leaned forward over his desk. His twinkling eyes peered out at Minerva. So, Minerva, how did you find Harry? Minerva opened her mouth. Then she closed her mouth. Then she opened her mouth again. No words came out. I see, Albus said gravely. Thank you for your report, Minerva. You may go. End Chapter 6 Thank you to the following people. Dumbledore, Drake Walker. Minerva McGonagall, read by Autumn Rachel Dryden. Lance Finney. This chapter's original text, production notes, and attribution links, along with archives and much more, can be found at hpmorpodcast.com. If you would like to learn more about the art of rationality, please visit lesswrong.com, an online community of aspiring rationalists founded by Eliezer Yudkowsky. Some sound effects used are courtesy of the Free Sound Project. The music used is Catch That Goblin by Skaven. Thank you for listening. Please come back next week for the first half of Chapter 7, Reciprocation. Reciprocation.